The Tea Health Show, your medical lifestyle podcast, brought to you by the Tea Clinic. Good morning, I'm Dr. Mark. This is the Tea Health Show, and in studio today with us, um, we have Dr. Brian van Onselen, a ophthalmologist here in Johannesburg, and as always, my um, producer Simpiri. Brian, good morning. Good morning, Mark. It's so wonderful to have you here. Thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule. Um, Brian, ophthalmology, um, eyes, vision, it's something that I think is incredibly dear to us. And as someone that had problems with my vision that came overnight, um, it's probably one of the most scary things when it goes wrong. So the first question that I want to ask you is, what is the difference between what you do as an ophthalmologist and what your local eye doctor, in other words, your optometrist, does? Well, Mark, I think um, the big difference is that an ophthalmologist is medically trained. So to become an ophthalmologist, you first have to become a medical doctor. And then you specialize in ophthalmology, which is an extra, usually an extra four years, but in practice probably five years because the specialist posts are quite hard to come by. So you'll find that most people that want to specialize in ophthalmology will work in the department, do their primary exams before getting an official post and actually becoming a registrar to specialize. An optometrist, on the other hand, is someone that has an interest in vision but they actually do an optometry degree. So this this does not involve any medi- formal medical training. So what the optometrists train in is actually refraction. So they are trained to sort out visual issues with spectacles and contact lenses. Okay. Um, I just want to add, though, that being said, they do have uh, training in, in anatomy and physiology of the eye. So they are trained to recognize problems, but they aren't trained necessarily to manage all the problems. Okay, so that's the difference. Um, Brian, so a simple question. When do you start going to an optometrist? We, we, you know what, I, I can't remember that at school, um, we were, we were told you have to go and see your optometrist like you see your dentist. Is it something that's changing, especially with the way in which we bring up our children nowadays with screen time, et cetera, et cetera? Um, I think there is a growing awareness um, with respect to potential eye issues and pathology. So uh, there are a lot of screening programs at schools now. So optometrists will go to schools. And they will screen for various issues. They will look for refractive errors and they will often find children that would need to actually use spectacles but wouldn't realize that blurred vision was abnormal because a lot of children grow up with slightly blurred vision and to them that's normal. So when you finally put spectacles on them and they can see what clear vision is, it's quite a revelation. Uh, there are also children with squints and tracking issues that, that screening optometrists can sort of pick up. And what they then do is they advise the parents to go and see an ophthalmologist or if they need spectacles, they advise the parents to see an optometrist, often would be themselves, uh, to actually get uh, spectacles made. So from a childhood perspective, um, you know, that that is where children are picked up. Um, on the other hand, parents often, you know, when they're doing family photos, they would notice that one of the children, for example, would have an eye that was deviating off the central line, and they would then say, okay, my child has got an issue. And they, they will often say it's a lazy eye. That's a colloquial mm. term for a squint, and uh, they would then go and seek help. So that's that's normally when children would be either referred to an optometrist or go through the optometric assessment. Uh, in terms of adults, a lot of adults would basically, once they start reaching their 40s and they start developing presbyopia, which is the sort of long arm type syndrome where you have to hold things further away to see, okay. um, they would go to clicks or disc and they would buy reading glasses and they would probably function quite well with those glasses. Um, however, that's probably your the right time for you to go and see an optometrist for, for a couple of reasons. First of all, you will get a basic examination. And we know that um, age-related pathology such as cataracts and glaucoma start normally 
in your late 40s and early 50s. So an optometrist would be able to pick up if there was something wrong and they would then be able to refer you to an ophthalmologist. The the other important thing is that over-the-counter readers are fine. There's nothing wrong with them. Um, you just have to know where the sweet spot is. So you could choose a pair of plus ones and the sweet spot would be maybe 30, 40 centimeters away from you or you could go to a plus two and the sweet spot would be 15 centimeters away from you. So you would then, you know, choose where you like to read and you would get your readers according to that. If you went to see an optometrist though, if there was a subtle difference between the two eyes, they could make a bespoke pair of reading glasses for you. They would then calculate the reading need for each eye and put them into a correct pair of specs for you. Mm. And, and you'd probably find that if you used a pair made by an optometrist, you would have less eye strain than an, a pair that was over the counter. So I want to interject there. Um, you mentioned eye strain. Um, isn't eye strain something that can lead to further problems or can cause problems on its own, something like an accommodative spasm? Yeah, so eye strain can be a problem. It can cause, as you say, an accommodative spasm, which is where your focus muscles go into spasm because they're working so hard. And this would be if you don't have the correct um, spectacle power. So your your eyes are f- battling to focus and they're not able to focus. And you're doing vision-intense tasks like studying for exams, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing that eye strain can do is it can be a precursor for migraine. So you could be in a situation where you're maybe sleep-deprived, your sugar levels are a bit low, and you then have eye strain added to the mix, and that could be what sets off migraines. So I, I often do see patients with migraines, and, and one of the things that we need to do is get the prescription of the spectacles right. And that's a starting point for, for actually um, trying to work out how to combat these migraines and prevent their recurrence. I, I remember when I presented to you in a panic uh, where I started developing double vision, uh, which came about overnight. Um, and we did all the investigations and none of the special tests, including an MRI, pointed to anything. And at one point you said to me, uh, Mark, do you get migraines? And I said to you, yeah, but I get an aura. And you mentioned something which I never heard of after being in the medical fraternity for 20 years, and that's a silent migraine. Yes. Um, where you have vision disturbances with no headache. Correct. Um, and is that something that you see often? And if if something like... That happens, so people that get that aura, that blurry vision or the um, flickering lights in front of the eye without developing pain, is it something that they go to their uh, local optometrist to or is it something that, um, you know, what uh, I need to speak to my health care uh, practitioner because uh, something is is wrong? Yeah, so, so it, it is a fairly common thing, the retinal migraine, and typically patients develop these scotoma, um, which are patches where the vision sort of disappears for a while, and it can, can even last for up to 15, 20 minutes and be quite scary. Um, you also can get sort of flickering lights. Um, you can get a confetti-type vision with silver sort of confetti you know, in front of your vision. So there are various uh, images that patients do describe. Um, it is important that they see an ophthalmologist because there are a couple of other important medical conditions that can mimic a retinal migraine. Mm. And the two most important are retinal detachment, which can also um, have as a symptom flashing lights. And it's sometimes quite hard to distinguish between the flashing lights that indicates traction on the retina and the flashing lights that might indicate an aura for a retinal migraine. The other important thing that one has to rule out is a transient ischemic attack. So, so that's basically a temporary stroke. A temporary stroke, correct. So, partial loss of vision in a sector of your of your vision. In other words, you know, losing half the field of your vision for a, for a couple of minutes to half an hour, and then it returns could also be a sign of of a of a TIA or a, temp, a transient ischemic attack. And those patients normally need to be checked thoroughly in terms of their blood pressure, their blood sugar, and we normally do an ultrasound of the carotid artery because that's normally where the culprit is. A, yeah, that's a, where a, a, piece, a piece of plaque f- 
breaking off in the carotid artery and, and lodging in, in the, in the, the, um, vascular system of the eye, um, and causing a temporary l- loss of, of blood flow. And then that piece of plaque breaks up and moves on. Um, and those patients you'd want to catch early before it becomes a full blown stroke. Okay. So before we go on to the, um, most common diseases of VI, I want us just to uh, stop for a second at children. What are the most common eye conditions in children? So in children, I think the most common eye conditions are undiagnosed refractive errors. Okay, so this is literally where the lens is not focusing the uh, picture on the retina correctly. So in other words, this is creating a, a blurry or a double vision. Am I correct? Yes, exactly. And unfortunately, what often happens in children is that they have what we call anisometropia. So anisometropia would be a difference in prescription between the two eyes. Mm. So what you would often find in children is that one eye is perfectly focused. In other words, there's almost a zero prescription. The other eye would have a prescription error. Now, what happens is in the formative years, which up to age seven or eight, the brain is still developing the visual pathways. So each individual eye is connecting to your occipital cortex in the back of the brain. And these pathways are forming as you grow older. Okay. Now, in children with a prescription error in one eye, what happens is that the brain favors the clear vision eye. Yes. And it ignores the poor vision eye. Yeah. So what happens is that your your connections between your optic nerve and your occipital cortex are dominated by the good eye. Okay, so that crossover um, is not happening on an equal basis. Correct. It's stronger on one side than the other. Correct. And the issue is if you don't catch it early, by the time the child is eight or nine, this um, deficit in, in transmission um, neural pathways from the bad eye is entrenched. It's permanent. And we okay. then have what we call an amblyopic eye or a lazy eye. Okay. So this eye's visual potential. But lazy in the sense it's not movement that it strays from your midline. It's lazy in the sense that it's actually not seeing. Exactly. Okay. So it's not seeing and its visual potential <coughs> is poor. Um, so if you have a look at the classic studies and the textbooks, the, the teaching is that once an eye is amblyopic, it cannot be rehabilitated. But what we do see in practice in many cases is, is if the patient grows to adulthood and something should happen to the good eye, the brain then has a way of helping the poor eye to see a bit better. So that eye okay. takes up the slack a little bit, but it doesn't always happen. So, so typically the, the classic teaching is once you've lost vision in that eye, the eye will never be completely blind, but you will never have clear vision in that eye. Okay. So basically what you're saying is that the neuroplasticity after the age of seven stops. Um, you can't really exercise that eye back into full function. No, you okay. Can't. So for me, that's scary. How do parents identify this? Okay. So there are a couple of clues um, that may point to a visual issue in your child. Because remember, the child is born this way, so it's the norm for the child. They don't know that they should have equal and clear vision in both mm, eyes. Mm. So what often happens in an amblyopic eye is that that eye starts to squint. Because it's not focusing, that eye drifts. So that's an important sign. So if a parent sees one eye drifting, it's an indication that there may be an issue with that eye. Okay, Brian, what is the easiest way to determine drifting? Is it that you ask your child to look at something close or is it that you ask them to look at something far or is it just something that you need to observe? Yeah, it's more of an observation, but it is easier to see with distance vision because near vision tends to cause accommodation. It tends to pull the eyes together and that sometimes masks the, the, the drift of the eye. Okay. Um, so that's the, that's the important thing. So what we find a lot of children, if you look at them, uh, and they are squinting, there are two main categories of squint. So the first one is a congenital squint. So a child is born with a squint. Mm-hmm. And now this is normally due to a muscle abnormality. 
And these children need to be operated on fairly early. So what most people would do is they would wait for an age when the anesthetic risk has decreased to a negligible kind of level. So this is about, about two, three? After the age of one. Okay. Yeah. And then you would take the child to theater and you would reposition the muscles. And, and it's not a big operation it's and a, it's very successful. Exactly, yes. Okay. And often you don't even need to align the eyes perfectly. You just need to get it to kind of straight and the brain will do the rest. Okay. So that's a congenital squint. The second sort of category, and this is the one that's probably missed most, is is um, uh, where patients have got what they call an accommodative squint. Okay. And this is where the child has got a prescription error. And in trying to actually focus, the muscles pull so hard that it pulls the eyes inwards. So, so they have a squint because of an accommodative error. Okay, so they're basically pointing towards the nose. Exactly. exactly. Okay. So these, child, these children don't actually have a muscle issue. So if you put the appropriately powered spectacles on these mm. children, it relaxes that accommodative drive and the eyes straighten up. Okay. So, you, so you, you do two things by giving them the correct spectacles. You straighten their eyes and you correct their vision. So okay. you then take the blur away and give them sharp vision, which helps their visual development. Okay. So can I ask a question? Could yes. Um, with uh, kids, because I'm seeing it with my niece, where they're playing on tablets um, and they basically screen time. Mm-hmm. Does that also impact the development of the eye? So, so it's interesting. If you if you have a look at the incidence of myopia or short sightedness across the world, the countries with the highest incidence. Uh, are probably Japan. Yes. Have you ever seen a little Japanese child that's not wearing glasses? No. Yeah, yeah. Very high incidence. And it's because they read a lot. And the other high incidence, inter- interestingly, is in the Hasidic Jewish population because they get to read the Torah every day. And those children are focusing up close for eight, nine, ten hours a day. Very high incidence of myopia. So actually what they're doing in Japan is they're treating these children with atropine drops, which which okay. relax the pupil and relax the spasm of accommodation. And they found that this prophylactic treatment with atropine drops creates a bit of a blur in terms of the vision, but it prevents the myopia. So that's quite but, an interesting um, insight. That would also basically force them to keep their screens a little bit further away yes. from the eyes. Yes. Because think about it, we all have a tendency to move your uh, um, well, you young people, we old people have a tendency to <laughs> yes. use a selfie stick to read. Yeah. So, um, Brian, um, the most common eye problems and conditions that you guys are faced with. I have a couple in my mind. Um, and, um, last week we did a show on diabetes, um, and the incidence in, of diabetes, that's literally skyrocketing. Um, diabetic retinopathy, um, is it one of the main conditions that, that you guys are faced with? Yes, we see a lot of diabetic retinopathy, and it's a pretty much fair company now that if you are diagnosed with diabetes that you will be referred to an ophthalmologist for screening. So it's become part and parcel of the screening program for diabetics. So we work a lot with independent diabetic institutes like the the Center for Diabetes and Endocrinology, and those patients are all sent for screening. So what we find is is with diabetics, if you look at the statistics, if you are a type 1 diabetic and you have type 1 diabetes for 25 to 30 years, there's almost a 100% chance that you will have some form of diabetic retinopathy. Okay. Can I, can I just stop you there? Just please explain to our listeners what diabetic retinopathy is. It's a vascular condition. Sure. Um, but uh, you know what? Just please tell us exactly so that we do, uh, understand. So if you're <laughs> diabetic, um, the two major issues from an eye perspective are the lens of your eye which is highly dependent on glucose metabolism. And if there's impaired glucose metabolism, your lens starts to struggle from a metabolic perspective. And when a lens in the eye struggles, it loses its transparency and it starts to become cloudy. And this is what we call a cataract. 
So, so sorry, I'm, I'm going to ask this. Is the major contributing factor to development of cataracts um, hyperglycemia? Yeah. So diabetics develop cataracts earlier than they I would have it was normally. Sun damage. No, no. Cataracts. Okay. Diabetics develop it much earlier than they would have um, normally from an age perspective. So remember, some of us are genetically predisposed to form cataracts early. You seek okay. families that form cataracts early. Okay. And when I say early, patients in their 40s with significant cataract. Okay. But if you have diabetes and you were meant to develop your cataracts at 70, you will then probably develop them at 60. Ooh. Okay. So diabetes is important. And again, these particular pathological um, uh, sort of elements that I'm talking about are very dependent on your diabetic control. So and a poorly controlled diabetic will develop these things that I'm talking about a lot quicker and a lot more severely than someone that has good control. So the, the essence of preventing eye problems with diabetes is control. Is diabetic retinopathy mm. reversible or is it only preventable? So to a degree, it is reversible. So when we're talking about retinopathy, the retina is the area at the back of the eye, almost like an electric blanket that lines the back of your eye. So if you use the old analogy of, of, of a camera, the lens would be obviously the lens of the camera and the, the retina would be the film in the camera that mm -hmm. captures the image. So your retina um, has hundreds of thousands of metabolic processes that are ongoing at any given time. So when a photon of light hits your retina – depending on whether it's a, a rod or a cone, uh, those are the different types of cells you get in the retina. A, a metabolic process happens and an electrical impulse is generated and this is then sent to the back of your of your brain, to your occipital cortex, which sorts out these images and forms um, a, a coherent image with contrast, color, depth, all the, the different things that we enjoy with our vision – these are all, these all start off with a, with an, uh, an electric and, and metabolic reaction on the retina. Mm. So your retina is a highly vascularized, um, uh, organ because it requires a lot of nutrients and oxygen. So what happens is with diabetes, because you lose your structural integrity of your blood vessels, diabetics tend to start to develop leakage of the, of the blood vessels. So what leaks out of the blood vessel? Well, it usually starts with proteins and serum. And these are deposited under the retina and they form what we call exudates. So these are calcified little spots under the retina which can interfere with retinal function because it's almost like a bubble under the, um, uh, the, the wallpaper on the yeah. wall. You know, the wallpaper is meant to be flush against the wall, but now you're getting bubbles forming. So that will distort your vision because uh, it's literally um, uh, causing a refractive disorder, basically. Yeah, yeah. So if you get okay. these little deposits forming in the center of your retina at your macula, it can cause vision distortion. So this is what happens with macular degeneration. This so, is one of the other serious conditions. Okay, yes. so we'll circle back to that one. Yes. So, so with, <coughs> with diabetics, um, what we do is uh, traditionally diabetics were treated with laser treatment. So the, you, you would laser the peripheral retina. Now, what this does is it actually kills off the peripheral retina to a degree. So that sounds terrible. Why would you want to kill off the retina? Yes. Well, there's a very good reason for this. So by killing off your peripheral retina, you are impairing the patient's peripheral vision to a degree. Not completely, but to a degree. But what you are doing is you are decreasing the oxygen demand of the retina. Ah, so you're, decreasing, so you're making it smaller so that the demand is less. So okay. if, if your oxygen demand of the retina is less, you have less chance of there being an oxygen deficit. And if there's less chance of an oxygen deficit, you have less chance of a protein called VEGF mm -hmm. forming in your eye. Mm. And VEGF is a very powerful um, protein and hormone which actually encourages the growth of tiny new vessels. And tiny new vessels is the enemy of the eye because the tiny new vessels form in the back of the eye and the retina in an attempt to increase the, the vascularization and the perfusion of the retina. Yeah. And so it's a good from that perspective. But the problem with these tiny vessels are they are very fragile and they so are they very burst. prone to burst and break. Ah, okay. And then you have bleeding in the back of the eye, which is the enemy of the diabetic eye. 
because once the eye bleeds and it bleeds into the jelly, you get scar tissue of the jelly. You then get traction on the retina and tractional detachment of the retina and eventually complete blindness. Okay, so for me that is completely counterintuitive because I would think if you knew vas- uh, if you create new vascularization in the retina, you know what, you should be solving the problem. Um, it's reperfusion of an area that's, that's, um, deoxygenized. So, okay. In other words, control your blood sugar. Yes. And this is not something that, as we discussed last week, you need medication for. It's actually just stop eating crap. Yeah. Okay. Um, Brian, um, glaucoma. Mm. Um, do you want to explain to us? What that is, I, I think it's something that a lot of people have heard of, but they don't really understand what it is. And it's a common condition and a lot of medication, et cetera, et cetera, can aggravate or even cause this condition. Yeah. So glaucoma is a very a tricky subject. And the reason being that it's, it's a silent killer vision. Most patients who have glaucoma would not know that they've got glaucoma. So it's not necessarily that you will have a painful eye, et cetera, et cetera, mm. or watery eye. Not at all. Not at okay. all. Okay. And this is the <clears throat> difficulty with glaucoma. And this is probably one of the main reasons why patients should go to an optometrist for screening. Because optometrists are able to screen the pressure in your eye and have a look at the back of your eye. And it's pretty easy to see if there's an abnormality. So what glaucoma is, is it's a progressive neural degeneration of your optic nerve. And so it's a neurological disease, it's not a, a disease of pressure. No, it's a neurological disease. And this is sometimes not well elucidated in, in the actual um, uh, message that is sent out. So if we look at glaucoma, your optic nerve dies off. Okay, So you lose uh, optic nerve tissue. And as you lose optic nerve tissue, you get visual field deficits because your optic nerve obviously is the collection of all the neurons from the retina. Can I can I uh, uh, ask you if I can make uh, if I make a picture in my eye I'm looking at a, a cable like a um, one that you would use for a bridge which is made up of separate little cables tied into bundles and then tied into one. Is that basically how we can see the um, ophthalmic yeah, nerve. Yeah, I think I think the easiest the easiest analogy, and uh, and you and I are similar age, so you would remember what I'm about to describe. Um, if you remember those those lights that used to be all the vogue, so what they were, they they're a sort of a fan of fiber optic cables. Yes. And the tip of the light has got a tiny little color. Yes. Yes. Okay. Yes. So so that would be a, a good analogy. So the, the base of your of your bedside light would be your optic nerve. And this fan of fiber optic cables would be the, the neurons that are running to your retina. Okay. Okay. So as you, as you damage the base, which is your optic nerve, yeah. these little lights start to go out. So one by one by one. So you basically get, um, a, a, a field of vision with dark spots or exactly. light spots. Exactly. Uh, where so where normally you, you would see. be able okay. to see 180 degrees from left to right and, and maybe 160 degrees from, from top to bottom or north to south, that field of vision starts to decrease. And eventually in end-stage glaucoma, you're left with tunnel vision, just a central little tunnel of vision, which is pretty scary. And around that is blackness. So that's why it's very important that uh, that one catches glaucoma because if you look at the statistics – um, if you have non-treated glaucoma, 30% of people will go blind in one eye, at least, before they die. Sure. Okay, so this is scary statistics. I can never say that word. Um, and it's something that is silent. Yes. What causes this? So the one manageable cause is the pressure in the eye. And most patients with So this is where my, uh, I think most people's idea of glaucoma is a condition that happens because the interocular pressure is too high. Yes. Is, is, but that's not the only cause. That's the problem. That is a big cause, but it's not the only cause. So the okay. majority of patients with glaucoma will have high intraocular pressure. 
So the problem is the normal range of intraocular pressure is 10 to 16 millimeters of mercury. And remember that intraocular pressure has got nothing to do with blood pressure. It's got nothing to do with the pressure in the brain, the cerebrospinal fluid pressure. It's a distinct pressure entity on its own. So in your eye, you have an area that forms what we call um, intraocular fluid. And this fluid then circulates through the eye and carries nutrients to the structures in the eye, like the lens that don't have any blood vessels. It then carries waste products out of the eye and it drains out through a meshwork, like a spongy meshwork. If if my anatomy serves me right right, and I think I'm wrong, it's the vitreous. The trabecular meshwork is where it drains from and the aqueous is actually what's formed. You know what, 27 (laughs) years after doing ophthalmology, I can't remember these things. Okay. Okay. So so the majority of patients that that have glaucoma have an imbalance between production and drainage. So what happens is their drainage meshwork, the trabecular meshwork, which is the spongy area that actually drains this fluid, starts to become blocked. So it's like a gutter that starts to block. Okay. So the production continues, the drainage weakens, and the net pressure rises. Now, normally there's a range of pressure that we can accept as normal. So 10 to 16 millimeters of mercury will be normal. So normally in patients with glaucoma, we see them with pressures of over 16. Okay. So typically they'll present with pressures of 22, 24, 26, and in That's some high. cases even 40, Wow. Okay, which is an emergency. Because if you leave them with a pressure of 40, they will be blind within a month. So the problem comes with patients that have got a pressure of 14, but for them that pressure is too high. Because so it's they have individualized yes, thing. because they have um, a congenital or a congenitally susceptible optic nerve. Why? We're not sure. But those cells are pre-programmed for apoptosis, which is okay. the name for cell death. 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 Yeah. So for some reason, some of these patients have got normal tension glaucoma. Yeah. So they've got a normal tension and normal pressure in the eye. But that pressure is too high for them. So, sorry, my, my first question is how do you identify these people? Because they're going to go to the optometrist who's going to do that little puff test. Yes. Um, it's going to come back as a normal uh, measurement, 10 to 16. Yes. Um, but they still have glaucoma. Yes, but the optometrists are trained to have a look at the back of the eye. Okay, so they're going to start seeing changes in your retinal… In the optic nerve. So they look at the optic nerve. Okay. So the optic nerve is shaped like a little volcano. It's got a rim and it's got a crater in the center we call the cup. Okay. So once you've got a bit of experience, you can look at an optic nerve and you can say the cup is too big for the rim. Okay. This is suspicious. But this is something that… An experienced optometrist is going to be able to identify yes. because they've seen it before. Yes. Um, it's that old thing. If you don't know what's normal, how can you see what's abnormal? Yes. Yes. Okay. Brian, so glaucoma, is it caused by lifestyle? Is it caused by medication? Can it be aggravated by certain things? Not really. The only thing that, that aggravates glaucoma is, is cortisone. So cortisone is a, is a problem with glaucoma. A lot so these of, would be cortisone, eye drops, cortisone, orally ingested yes. cortisone, cortisone injections, cortisone creams. Cortisone creams, cortisone creams Systemic on, or, on or around the eyelids. And Okay, so this is where we stay away from cortisones. We go yeah. to the illidals and blah, 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 yeah. which is not a cortisone base. Yes. Okay. Um, I learned something from you and Dr. Um, uh, Polili uh, about dermatology. So, okay. Um I think some of the other others that we need to discuss is cataracts. Mm. So uh, cataracts, as I mentioned, is is a cloudiness of the actual natural lens in the eye. So the definition of cataract has changed. Because cataract surgery is so successful, um, there's a 99% success rate. It's a 20-minute procedure these days under topical anesthesia. No more big injections to try and numb the eye. It's not necessary. So we've refined the technique. We've refined the measurements so that we can implant an appropriately powered lens into the eye. So which can with take a cataract, away. is it basically a lens transplant? Exactly. That's what okay. it is. So you literally take the whole lens So off. we remove the old lens and we replace it with a new artificial lens. Now, the artificial lenses have been redesigned and the, the designs are constantly improving. And they now have what we call an aspheric profile. 
So an aspheric profile means that as your lens ages, it flattens. Mm. Now, when you pl- implant an artificial lens, the artificial lens has got a recreated curve that you would expect in a 19-year-old lens. So what this does is it gives you enhanced vision. Bionic eyes. Yeah. <laughs> so we, we had a congress a couple of years back with, with a very famous American refractive surgeon. Now, a refractive surgeon is an ophthalmologist that deals with cataract and laser getting rid of spectacles. So he's one of the famous guys. He's got a couple of um, uh, um, textbooks written by him, etc., etc. And he was talking about this aspheric profile of the new intraocular lenses. And his comment was that they designed it to be to mimic a 19-year-old lens because, as he put it, all your systems in your body and all your organs operate optimally at 19. After that, it's downhill. So that's why they chose the 19-year-old lens. So the new generation intraocular lenses give you very, very good vision. And in most cases, you can get rid of spectacles for distance vision. You only then need spectacles for reading. Yeah, because – okay – um, I'm on your list, Brian. Uh, you know, I've been wearing multifocals for so many years, um, and they do become a bit of a pain in the ass now and again. Okay, causes of cataracts. So the main diabetes. Diabetes is a big one. Age related is our is our most. So that common. is just normal progression of age. It's it's natural. So, so what patients find um, is that their vision starts to drop, especially in low light conditions, mm-hmm. late afternoon, early evening. They can't see so well. Driving becomes an issue because of glare, mm-hmm. because the um, the clarity of the lens can either be, be a generalized cloudiness, or you can have spokes forming in the clear lens sort of reflect light and diffract light. So when you drive at night, glare becomes an issue. And then they also notice that their spectacles are becoming thicker and thicker. Mm. And these are all signs of cataract. So we don't wait anymore for patients. You know, the old days they used to say you had to wait for your cataract to become ripe. Oh, that's when it becomes milky. When it becomes milky and you can't see anything anymore. We don't wait for that anymore. That's ridiculous. The minute patients are becoming... um, completely spectacle dependent and changing their spectacles regularly and not seeing well to drive, we will then do the cataract surgery for them because then they can enjoy the benefit of the new eyes for the rest of their life. Okay. Um, we, I, I, you have to run back to your office and so do I. So we have a little bit of time left. And one of the topics that I want to discuss is ophthalmic emergencies Mm. but there's something that we haven't touched on yet and that's macular degeneration Mm. which is one of the most serious eye conditions very much um do you want to explain to us exactly what the macula is and why it degenerates Mm. and why it causes such big problems sure so macular degeneration um, is a disease that affects the aged Um, and there are two big Categories, dry macular degeneration and wet macular degeneration. So I'll just briefly explain the difference. So what happens is the retina that we talked about, this electric blanket at the back of the eye, it has got a central area called the macula. Now the macula is where your concentration of your little cells is at its highest. So your rods and cones are concentrated in a very high level at the macula. It's so this is basically the sweet spot of vision. Exactly. It's the sweet spot of your retina. It's in the center of your retina, and it's the area that is responsible for fine vision and contrast, whereas your peripheral uh, peripheral retina is more responsible for motion detection, mm. light, dark, etc. Mm. So if you want, if you're doing a task that requires fine perception, contrast, threading a needle, your macula will be the part of the retina that's working the hardest. Okay. Now, because this area works the hardest, it also has the highest metabolic turnover. And that metabolic turnover results in waste products. And these waste products are usually carried away by the choroid, which is the layer of blood vessels under the retina. Mm -hmm. Now, as you get older, the, the ability to carry away those waste products is taken away from you. So does conditions like hypertension, um, diabetes obviously Very um, much so. play a role Very in much so. making this process weaker? Smoking? Very much so. Okay. Smoking is terrible for macular degeneration, as it is for most medical conditions. It makes it 100 times worse. 
So what we find is instead of being carried away, these waste products are deposited under the macula, and they form little blobs of lipid and calcium. So it's basically like cholesterol plaques almost. Exactly. That they look exactly like there. that. And we call them drusen, D-R-U-S-E-N. Now these drusen, with time, cause thinning of the retina and atrophy of the retina in the macular area. And this is what we call dry macular degeneration. So this is where the blanket becomes threadbare. Exactly. Okay. And if these deposits build up high enough, they cause little little protuberances under the retina, and the retina then sort of almost kinks over these, and then when you look at a line, the line becomes wavy. Okay, so literally it's like when you take um, the sheet that you project, you know, some people are too young to know this. We used to hang up a sheet in the back garden and mean you would invite your friends and watch a movie on that. Oh, but like this a is, projector. Yeah. Yes, but yes. this is instead of having a flat screen, it's, you know what, doing it on your mother's curtain. Sure. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. All right. So, so that's uh, the dry one. Yes. And so we always, um, give patients what we call an Amsler grid. An Amsler grid is a, a little collection oh, of. Is that the, the thing with the lines? Yes. And we ask okay. them to look at the grid every day or every second day at least. And if they notice that the lines are becoming more wavy, this could indicate that those drusen are becoming bigger or that they are starting to leak because the blood vessels in that area are also affected by these drusen. And then when you get leakage of fluid or even blood, you then have wet macular degeneration. Ah, so and it's this going causes also a distorting. Big, the distortion becomes dramatic, often okay. overnight, and it becomes enlarged. And if you don't catch that early, the longer that retina stays away from its blood supply because it's got this pocket it's of fluid under off. it, the more the retina dies off and the worse the prognosis is for vision. And those patients require injections. Okay, so… Can I squeeze in two questions? Because, hmm. wow. Uh, first one is, is there anything that I can do to kind of improve my, my, my eyesight? When I was younger, they're like, eat carrots for 2020 vision. And secondly, how often… <laughs> <laughs> And secondly, how often should I um, actually go and get my eyes checked? Because now I feel like this is something that I I never Brian, thought about. Before I, I get Dr. Van Onselen to answer, there's one question, Brian, that I want to ask as part. And then you can answer all three and then we'll wrap up. Um, sun exposure. So um, does this make things worse? So let's start with some PWS. Um, answers. How often do you need to test your eyes? So you should get a baseline test at at 40 or 45, I think. And not prior to that? I don't think it's necessary. Not unless you've got a problem with your vision, in which case you'll be seeing the optometrist anyway. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So mums, dads, screen the little ones, look for drift, um, reading problems, etc., etc. Is that something sure. that… Especially if they're sitting very close to the book. Okay, so screen the kids, um, and we should start testing at the age of 40. But please, guys, if, if you're starting to notice changes in your vision, go and see your optometrist. Mm. So, people, your other question that you wanted to Is ask? Is there any way of improving? And yeah, carrots, yeah. carrots doesn't work. Oh, yeah, okay. so, so patients who've got a family history. So just quickly to get back to macular degeneration, three big risk factors, smoking, mm-hmm. people with light-colored irides, so blue or green irises, and a family history. Those are your three big risk factors. If you have any of those or all of those, you should be taking a preventative vitamin. And Which one? Normally, I would prescribe Ocuvite, but you do get others, Isorex, um, oh, they're, they're a whole host. And they've all, are, those, are, are those actual vitamins like A, D, E, K, C? So what they've got is they've got a combination of antioxidants and lutein, lutein and okay. zeaxanthin. Those are the two important ones to help prevent macular degeneration. Just on the vitamin A side, mm-hmm. vitamin A very good for your eyes. Okay. And if you have a lack of vitamin A, you get big eye problems. But what they did was they did a trial where they gave people excess vitamin A in order to try and fix their eyesight. And guess what? Too much is toxic for your retina. Mm. So you have to be careful. So these eye-specific vitamins have got the correct balance of the of vitamin A Antioxidants. Then I want to ask you a question on that tretinone that we yeah. use topically for our skins yeah. and roaccutans, et cetera, et yes. cetera, which is a vitamin A derivative. Is it something that you need to be careful with? 
not a problem uh, in terms of retina, but Roaccutane, a big problem with dryness of the eye. Okay, so photosensitivity. Yeah. Brian, photosensitivity, is the sun causing damage? Is it something? It, it is. You know what? I, I know that I, um, I never walk outside without my sunglasses. Um, is it something that we should Very teach our kids Very from important. a young age? Ultraviolet light causes cataracts or aids in the formation of cataracts. It also aids in the formation of macular degeneration. So ultraviolet light should be filtered. The new generation uh, intra- is this intra- polarized, um, Not polarized lenses polarized. or just dark glasses? UV four hundred is the is the gold standard. So UV four hundred. So your sunglasses should filter UV four hundred. So the Fong Kongs don't do that, but the decent ones do. The lenses that we implant for cataract surgery have got a built-in ultraviolet filter, particularly for that to, to actually um, protect you, the back of your eye against um, the, the, the harmful effects of ultraviolet. Okay. So um, I Mark, think… Mark, just one more thing. Just when you're talking about children's screening, there's a very useful thing that parents can remember. Mm. If you want to check your young child's vision, yeah. what you do is you take some hundreds and thousands that you would put on a cake and you put them in your hand, and you ask your child to pick out individual little hundreds and thousands. If they can do that, they should normally be okay. That's a good exercise. Well, I, I think it's a bloody difficult exercise. <laughs> I can't do that. You can, if you give me a tweezer, maybe. This is why you're wearing glasses, Mark. <laughs> Brian, um, I'm going to bring you back for another show because I think there's a lot of eye conditions which you haven't mm-hmm. touched on. But before we go, um, ophthalmic emergencies. Um, uh, in my mind, immediately the retinal detachment, that's the curtain coming down. But you, you, you yeah, have th- some other th- symptoms of retinal detachment? I think the retinal detachment is, is probably the most important. There are others such as um, central retinal artery occlusion, which is a sudden loss of vision. But I think most people, if they had a sudden loss of vision, would go for help. Um, the one that they often don't go for help for is the retinal detachment. So just to remember, the jelly in your eye as you, as you age starts to degenerate. It becomes less jelly-like and more liquid. And it starts acquiring inertia, almost like yogurt sloshing around in a, in a yogurt container. And as it sloshes around, it starts to pull away from the retina where it was attached. So ah, so it makes that bubble basically. Yeah. So it starts which pulling suction. It almost pulls the wallpaper off the wall. Yeah. Okay. So in most patients, this this um, is a sort of a natural process, and and the the jelly cleaves away and leaves the retina intact. And then in the center of your eye, you've got this ball of degenerative jelly which is floating around, and the, normally it has little bits in it, and we call those floaters. Uh, so, so these are the things that you see exactly. float down and up and exactly. around. So a normal a normal detachment of the jelly with floaters, it's going to happen to all of us at some stage in our lives. If you're lucky, you've got thin jelly, you have one or two floaters, it's not really an issue. If you're unlucky, you've got thick jelly, you have a lot of floaters. It might create visual issues. Mm-hmm. We might need to do something about that. But that's not the point of, my, of what I was trying to get through. The big thing is the retinal detachment. So when this jelly pulls away and degenerates, if it pulls a tear in the retina, because it's adherent to the retina and in some places very adherent. So if it pulls a tear in the retina, that is an an area where fluid can get in behind the retina and cause the retina to peel away from the eye, almost like wallpaper peeling off the wall. This is an emergency. So if you see a lot of floaters, if you see a lot of black spots, which might indicate bleeding, if you see a lot of flashing lights from one area that doesn't seem to want to stop, that could indicate that tear that's pulling. Or if you see a dark curtain coming across your vision and it doesn't want to move, it just gets progressively bigger over a couple of days, you need to seek help. Now, this is particularly important if you are short-sighted because short-sighted people tend to have slightly longer eyeballs. It means that the retina is stretched a little bit more over that longer eyeball. It means that the retina is thinner. It means that that retina is, has a higher propensity to tear. Those patients need to be especially careful of those symptoms because they get retinal detachments. And interestingly enough, it's not the minus 12s, it's the minus 4s that are most at risk. Okay, so people with not the worst vision. Okay. Brian, there's uh, one last question, eye infections. Um, so these are your conjunctivitises, et cetera, et cetera. But the extreme one of those are uh, – 
ulcerations of your your cornea, etc., etc. Yes, yes. Um, pink eye conjunctivitis is it something that um, is dangerous um, beyond what people think they are, and it's, it's something that we should be more aware of. Um, I think there's especially small little children. With dirty hands, rub the eyes and get pink eye. But that's a bacterial condition, not necessarily any. Yeah, the, pink, the classic pink eye is an adenovirus. Um, so that's the classic pink eye, and it causes watery red eye, a bit of light sensitivity, and it's usually finished within two or three days. Your symptoms are gone. And we don't treat that because it's a virus. Yes, we don't. We don't treat that. Where we would treat is if the discharge becomes more sticky, more yellow, more green, which could indicate a secondary bacterial, bacterial infection. And now we treat this with eye drops. Yes, antibiotic eye drops are used to treat. In, this, in certain cases, this pink eye can involve the cornea, and you get little almost coin-like lesions on the cornea, which may require cortisone drops to help to fade. And they can even remain for the rest of your life and mm. cause a bit of a problem with your vision. So pink eye can be an issue. You know, it's not something to be trifled with. The big thing is if you've got pink eye, please stay away from other people because it's caused by direct contact. And you often don't know how often you rub your eye. And then you've got that on your hand and you shake someone else's hand and they rub their eye and boom, there we go. We've got an outbreak of of conjunctivitis. In terms of ulcers of the cornea, our biggest concern is contact lens wearers. Contact lens wearers usually are pretty good with their hygiene and their contact lens routine. But sometimes they get lazy. They sleep with a contact lens in overnight. It's a no-no. Even it, your your hard permanent con- type of contact lenses. I, so you remove them every and, single and night are, with clean there are, hands. There are extended wear contact lenses available now. I don't like them. I know that. The so tri- are you one of a daily? I prefer dailies. I prefer people, to, my patients, to take their contact lenses out when they go to sleep at night, because if you get a contact lens related ulcer. Unfortunately, the organism involved is usually a pseudomonas, which is oh, a very bad, a very bad organism. It can actually eat through your cornea in 48 hours and create a hole in the front of your eye. So this is not and, something and you want. corneal transplant if you're lucky. Exactly. Sure. Okay. Um, that was Dr. Brian van Onselen. Brian, um, you at the Sandhurst Eye Institute – um, if people need to get hold of us, um, how do, how do they do that? Can you give us your contact number, maybe a website? Yes, sure. So I, I am at the Sandhurst uh, Eye Center in, in Saxon Road in Sandhurst. Um, uh, should I give you the landline number? Yeah, yeah please. It's, it's 011-783-7071. Uh, alternatively, I do have a, a website and a web presence. If you Google Dr. Brian von Onsen, you will find that. Okay. Brian, thank you so much. We're going to bring you back. Um, you know, there's a couple of conditions which we still need to to discuss. Um, next week, I have no idea what I'm doing, like usual. Um, but uh, we'll be back at um, 9 o'clock on Thursday morning. Have a great day, everyone. Bye. That was the Tea Health Show, empowering you with knowledge. Download all previous episodes on your favorite podcast platform. The Tea Health Show is brought to you by Tea Clinic.